Well, hello, Pastor Matt here. Just want to take a moment to say thank you for tuning in to this message. We here at New Life Baptist Church hope that in making these resources available to the public, that we'll help to edify the body of Christ at large, and that you personally will increase in your knowledge of God, leading to a deeper love for Him. How great is our God. Man, what a song. There's nothing else to even say after that. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm excited to open up God's Word with you all this morning. We're going to do a little bit of a recap, because we're now moving over to Colossians chapter 2. So you can go ahead and flip over in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. We'll get there in just a moment, but we want to do a little bit of a recap uh, to refresh ourselves uh, about regarding exactly where we are, what's taking place up to this point, and uh, where we're headed now. So we have entitled this entire series, Christ is All. That wasn't just something cool that I made up. Um, that's actually a, a, a verse in chapter 3 that we will get to, um, but the reason why we titled it Christ is All is because the central theme of Colossians is that Christ is everything. He's everything for us, and we're going to learn more about that today in verses 1 through 5, but let's remember Paul is, is writing to the Colossians who this is a group of people that he does not know. He, he's never met these people He's in prison right now, and the man who started this church in Colossae, Epaphras, has come to visit Paul and update him on the status of the church and let him know, hey man, there is some false teaching that's sneaking in. It's really dangerous. I need your help. And so Paul, knowing what his calling is, being the Christ-centered minister that we learned about last week, takes pen to paper, and begins to write out a refute against the false teaching. But before he gets to dealing with it directly, what has he been doing? He's been exalting Jesus. Why? Because he wants to prepare the Colossians by knowing the truth first. By knowing who Jesus is and so he talks about the person of Jesus Christ, that he's the firstborn of all creation, that he's the head of the church, that in all things he's preeminent. And then he moves to talk about the work of Christ by telling us about how God has reconciled us to himself through the blood of Jesus. And then he talked about last week about the Christ-centered minister of what it means to minister to people in a way that has Christ at the center and he's doing all of this to prepare us to learn how to refute false teaching. And, and in particular, these Colossians, how they can refute the false teaching that's taking place at that time. The section that we're going to deal with this morning is going to be the last bit of preparation that Paul is going to do before he turns to deal more directly with the false teaching. So with that in mind, let's stand Let's read 2, 1 through 5, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is the Word of God. 
For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we open your word this morning, God, I ask that you would give us the illumination of the Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see great and wonderful things in your word. I pray that this morning that I would not share with these people ideas from my own invention or human philosophy, but that you would use me to to reach your people this morning, God, to encourage our hearts that we may be knit together in love that we may come to the full assurance of our understanding of you. May you be glorified this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So we see Paul opening up this section. Now, I just want to say this kind of as a side note, as an aside for your own personal Bible study. When Paul went to write this book or any book or when anyone went to write a book, they didn't write, okay, chapter 2, okay? He's just writing a letter. We have divvied it up into chapters and verses to make it easier for us to understand. But mind you, Paul is just writing a letter. And so this next section is actually, this verses 1 through 5 is actually a bit of a continuation of what we read last week. You'll notice some of the language was similar Because last week it ended with him saying, I I want you to know that I'm toiling for you. I'm struggling for you with the power that Christ works in me. And then he opens up this sentence by saying, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. What is Paul doing here? Let's let's really think about this. Is, Is Paul looking for sympathy? Because let's be honest, Paul has talked a lot about his struggle and how much he's suffering and how much he's toiling. Is Paul looking for sympathy from the Colossians? Well, I see a lot of heads shaking no, and it's very good to see because of course he's not. Because we learn that in this chapter, that in these verses, that he, he wants them to know that he's struggling so that they'll be encouraged. But before we get there, let's, let's take a look at what is this struggle that Paul is talking about. Why is he making such a big deal about, I'm struggling for you? Remember at the beginning of the last section that we did last week, he said, I rejoice in my suffering, and I'm filling up in my body what is lacking of Christ's afflictions. And then he ended by saying, for this I toil. And now he's saying, I want you to know how great a struggle I have. So let's take a moment and let's understand what this struggle is about. We're going to look at three goals of Paul's struggle. 
And then we're going to move on to look at um, a little bit where that leads us to. But three goals of, of Paul's struggle here. What is he struggling for? Well, first of all, the first thing that we need to understand is that Paul's, what Paul's struggle is. There is a physical aspect to it and a spiritual aspect to Paul's struggle. The physical aspect is the first and most obvious reason of how Paul is struggling. He's in prison. He's struggling physically. He's hungry. He's tired. He's imprisoned. He's getting beat. He's flogged. He is physically suffering much on account of the Colossians. But not just the Colossians we, we see here, not just for the Colossians, but he says, and for everyone at Laodicea and for everyone who has not seen me. This is just Paul's ministry. It has suffering built right in. It has struggle built right into it. And he's wanting them to know, I, I have a physical struggle for you. I'm imprisoned. I am here. I'm, I'm not trying to ignore the fact that I'm in prison. I'm struggling for you. And see, this is different than what we see today, is it not? I mean, we, we, we live in the era of, I've actually heard of, of preachers in this town. I won't say their names or what churches they're at, but I've heard of preachers in this town who have a green room where they have all their favorite drinks and snacks before they go up on stage. And it's just turned into this performance and let me just go perform for 30 minutes for them. And then let them burp and send them home. But in Paul's day and in Paul's mind, that is a foreign concept. He says, no, we struggle for the people. I struggle for you. I'm suffering for you. I'm in prison. I'm beaten. And when I'm doing these things, when they're happening, I have you in my heart. I have you in my mind and I remember you. And I'm doing this all for you. Though I'm not there with you physically, I'm there with you in heart. And I keep you in my heart because this is all for you. It's a physical struggle that Paul is going through. He is pouring his life out as a drink offering. But there's also a spiritual aspect to this. Flip over to chapter 4. And let's look at verse 12. And we're going to do this so we can get some context of this understanding. But 4.12, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. In chapter 1, Paul tells us that he's praying for them. That Paul is praying much for them, that they would grow and that they would grow into the knowledge of God. That they would live lives pleasing unto God. This word here that Paul is using for struggle, it's the word agonia. It's where we get our word agony from. It's the same word that in Luke 22, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke writes that Jesus was in such agony in his prayers. Jesus was struggling in his prayers. Such struggle was taking place within him that he then begins to sweat drops of blood. 
That is intense prayer. And Paul is using that same word here, saying, I'm struggling for you. And it's not just a physical struggle. This is a spiritual struggle. He's struggling for them in prayer. God, please be with the Colossians. God, please mature them. Please protect them. Please be with them. This isn't just the kind of prayer that you pray before you eat a whole mess of enchiladas at Abuelo's. This is a hard anguished prayer with his whole heart. It's intercessory prayer, praying on someone's behalf. He wants them to be protected. He wants them to come to know God. He wants them to be strong in the face of this false teaching. You see, Paul knows that the most powerful weapon that he has in this war against false teaching is prayer. We say this in our culture today, in our day and age, that, oh, well, I guess that all that there is for us to do is pray. It's all we can do is just pray. And we always say it with such, like it's the last resort And like our hands are tied and we're so hopeless. All that there's left for us to do is pray. But Paul wants you to know, no. The most important thing you can do is pray. Your first option, your first go-to, your second, third, fourth, fifth, a hundredth option is pray. Real prayer. Not Not that fake prayer where you're where you're just hiding your emotions, bring it all to God. Bring it all to him. Pour yourself out before him. God has always used people who pray. You know who he does not use? is people who don't pray. It's no mistake that we find in Chronicles that he says, if my people humble themselves and pray. Then I will turn. Then I will act. Then I will heal their land. And Paul knows this very well. He's praying for these Colossians. God, I know that this is the best thing I can be doing for them is sitting here and praying before you with all my heart and all my might. I'm struggling for you, Colossians. I'm struggling for you. John Wesley says, God does nothing but by prayer and everything with it. God has always used people who pray. Anytime there has been a a great awakening or a revival, a real revival, it has always been come to pass by two things. Prayer, real anguished prayer before God and the preaching of the word of God. Why does God do this this way? Because it takes all the faith in the world to just sit here and pray. Because what do we think? I need to be doing something. I need to go and do this. I need to do this. I need to do that. I got to go clean this. I've got to be here. I've got to do this. God says, no, you need to be still. Pray. Sit before him and pray. If you wonder where God seems to be in your life, pray. 
You wonder why you're not close to God like other people are? Pray. Ask him. Pray to him. Come before him. Lay it all out before him. I promise you, he can handle your emotions. Look at the Psalms. All throughout the Psalms, people are crying out their hearts to God as a reference point for us of how we should approach God. Let's keep going. So the first goal of Paul's struggle here is that they may be encouraged. Encouragement. He wants them to be encouraged by his struggle. He wants them to know, I'm doing this all for you. You're not alone in your struggle. You're not the only one who has, is having a hard time. I'm struggling too, and I'm struggling for you. Isn't there something so encouraging about knowing that you're not alone in the struggle? I don't know, maybe it's just me. But whenever I find out that other people struggle with things too, or other people have a hard time too, it gives me a lot of hope. It gives you a lot of encouragement. I've, I'm weird, and I watch preaching for fun. And I hear these great men of the faith that I admire, and they talk about their struggle and how hard it is sometimes for them to get up to preach and how they come to God saying, God, I, I, this isn't even a reality in my life. How can I come and, and preach? And guess what? It's encouraging to me. It's encouraging knowing there's other people who are just like me. Maybe the same is for you. That you need to know that you're not the only one who's human. I mean, imagine being there in the church at Colossae. And here you are struggling against all this false teaching. And you're like, man, what do we believe? This sounds really good what they're saying. But then we know that Epaphras taught us this. And then all of a sudden this letter comes, and it's from the Apostle Paul. They've heard about this man. He's a hero of the faith, a giant in the faith. And he's taking the time to write to them? From prison? That, that must have been so incredible for them at that moment. And what does Paul say? I want you to know that I'm struggling for you. Imagine how encouraging that must have been to hear. The Apostle Paul, I thought he had it easy because he, he saw Christ. I thought, I thought he was a hero in the faith and he, this was easy for him. Paul is saying, I'm, I struggle for you. Church, this morning, know that we are in this together. We all have struggles. We all have a hard time in life. We don't, we don't want to compare our struggles and our suffering to one another, but just know that we all have it. We're all struggling on this side of glory. We're all trying to find a way to make it through. Every last one of us. Find encouragement in that. See, Paul says in the, the letter to the Philippians, 
I, I read the first part last week where he says, I want you to know that what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And then he goes on to say, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What's happened to them is they were encouraged by Paul's struggle. So they said, you know what, guys? If, if Paul is in prison for this, and he hasn't folded, and he hasn't bent the knee, if Paul is still exalting the name of Christ and proclaiming the truth of the gospel of Christ, we ought to as well. He's imprisoned right now. What are we doing? What, what, what's our excuse? And in the same way for us today, let us remember that Paul struggled. You know, sometimes for us today, we think about the Apostle Paul and we're like, yeah, man, I mean, you wrote 95% of the New Testament. It's this, this Christian life is easy for you. No, Paul says here in verse 1, I want you to know that I'm struggling for you. Find encouragement in that this morning. That if you're struggling, you're not the only one and you're not alone. And this will lead us then to be knit together in love. That's the second part. His second goal is unity. I want you to be encouraged, and I want you to be united in love. Why? Because as we all come together and we all start to realize that we're all struggling, and that we're all in this together, and that none of us are worthy to be called by the name of Christ, that God has been gracious and merciful with every last one of us, and that we're all having a hard time, and we need each other, that that unites us in love. That we would be one. Not that we would just go to the same place and be united just because we're close to one another physically. But that we would be close in our hearts. That we would hold each other in our hearts dearly. Cherishing one another. Praying for one another. That this same struggle that Paul had for the church at Colossae, who he didn't know and he had never met, how much more should you and I struggle for one another? How much more should, should you be praying for one another? God, I, I just lift up my brother and my sister to you right now. I pray that whatever they're going through, God, that you would be there, that you would protect them against the evil one. How much more should we be that way with one another, united in love? And then when we gather together, hey, brother, sister, been struggling for you. And that would fill your heart with so much encouragement. To know I'm not here alone. I'm not the only one who's human here. Every, other people are having a hard time too. Guess what? If they're still here, if they're still praising God, I can too. And we all then come to grow to reach this fullness of understanding that Paul is speaking of. That's his third goal, is that we would come to the knowledge of Christ. Look at it in verse 2, halfway through verse 2. He said, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. 
Not just so we could be encouraged and leave with a smile on our face and say, hey, I love you, brother, but so that we can know Christ. Church, that is the goal of everything, is to know Christ. Not merely to be encouraged, not merely to love people, but to know Christ. Now this language is a little clunky, right? I mean, to reach the fullness, full assurance of understanding and knowledge. I mean, what is, that kind of sounds backwards in, in English. And your translation probably says it a little bit differently than mine. But what Paul is saying here is that as these things are happening, you will grow and you will reach this knowing that you know Jesus. That you can know that you know Jesus. And that will fill you with confidence. The word in my Bible is full assurance. There is just nothing quite as heart-enriching and as soul-strengthening as knowing that you know Jesus. I know that I know him, and you can't take that from me. That's what Paul knows as he's here in prison. I know Jesus, and no matter where they lock me up, and no matter how many times they beat me, they cannot take away the fact that I know him. And the same is true for us today. We can face anything in life if we know that we know Jesus. Not merely that we go to church. Not merely that we can quote a few scriptures. Not merely that we listen to Caleb. But that we know Jesus. I know him. I know who he is. So this begs the question... Do you know him? Are you fully assured this morning that I know Jesus? You can't take that away from me. I know him deeply, personally, for myself. Have you come to know the person of Christ because of the work of Christ? When you do, when you have this confidence... Church, you you don't need schemes. You you don't need people to tell you to have more self-esteem. You don't need to find tricky ways to fight depression or anxiety. Why? Because knowing Christ is everything. It's everything. We, We have so many different plans and programs to help people with this, that, and the other today. But what the Bible will stand up and boldly proclaim, unapologetically so, is that if you know Christ, you know all there is to know. That's all you need to know is Jesus. Paul said, when I was around you, I didn't want to know anything except for Christ and Him crucified. Paul says, to live is Christ. Christ is all. He is everything. And I implore you that if you do not have that confidence this morning, that you know him, don't leave this morning without settling the matter. It's the most important thing that you can do in your life, is to know Christ 
this mystery of God's that Paul is talking about. Look at the language. He says, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. What Paul is saying is that this mystery that people are always talking about, see, at that time, there, there was this idea that a mystery was this hidden knowledge that you could come to know, and it would give you this secret spiritual power. But Paul is saying the mystery, it's God's mystery. It's not anybody else's. It's the mystery of God. It belongs to Him. And this mystery is not a set of rules, regulations, plans, or procedures. This mystery is a person, and His name is Jesus. And we learned from the last section that He has revealed this mystery to His people. So there's nothing more to know. He's saying this to the Colossians so that whenever these, this group of people comes to try to bring this false teaching around, they can say, no, I don't care what mystery you're talking to me about. I've already been revealed this mystery, and his name is Jesus. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You can keep moving. We know him already. Do you have that confidence this morning? So what is the goal of all of this? Why does he want them to be encouraged? Why does he want them to have this unity? Why does he want them to have this knowledge of Christ? Well, as we move on, we will find three benefits of the knowledge of Christ. The first one is confidence that we just talked about. It's from two, uh, verse 2, in the middle of 2 to the end of 2. And the second one is knowledge and wisdom. You see in verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul's struggle for these Colossians and indeed everyone else was strategic. He knew what he was doing. He struggles that they may be encouraged, united in love, and know that they know Christ because in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That is to say that all that there is to know is found in Christ. Everything. Christ is the treasury of all that there is to know. You've heard the old cliche that's a really good cliche. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And that's true. That is absolutely true. And that's what he wants the Colossians to know, is that if you know Jesus, not only are your sins forgiven, not only do you have right standing before God, you also have access to the storehouse of knowledge and wisdom. Now this is important for the Colossians at that time because they lived in a world where these false teachers were wanting to entice them to fall away by offering them some secret access to a bogus version of hidden knowledge. But that's nothing like our world today, right? Oh, wait. That's exactly like our world today. I've said this before, and I will continue to say this. Just because the book is in a Christian bookstore does not make it Christian. Just because he has the title pastor does not even make what he's saying Christian or biblical. Just because the music is called Christian music does not mean it glorifies God. 
when we know Jesus, we will know how to spot the difference. We will know how to say, no, that's not right. It sounds right. It's it's almost right, and it sounds really good. And guess what? It's encouraging, and it just fills you with joy and happiness. But if it misses Christ, it misses everything. To diminish Christ or to elevate anything next to Christ is to get it completely wrong. Not just a little bit. It's to be completely wrong. And Paul is saying, I don't want that to happen to you. I want you to know Jesus, and I want you to know that you know him so that you can learn how to spot these fakes. You've heard of theology. A lot of people hear that word, and they, they get scared because they think it's for professors or for people at seminary or just for preachers and pastors. But theology just means the study of God. That's literally what it means. So whenever we say we don't like theology, what we say is, I don't like to study God. So let's get that out of our vocabulary if it's there. Theology is a very good thing. We need to know the truth. We need to know who God is and what he's like. Theology is the-ology. It is the highest thing that you can study in life. There is nothing greater than to study about God, to know him, to know what he did on the cross, to know what he's been like and acted like all throughout human history. Church, we need to know him. We need to study about God. We need to learn more and more so that way way when people try to lead us astray with high-sounding nonsense, we can say, no, that's not true. I know God already. J.I. Packer says, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Once you pursue knowledge of God and knowing Him, not just facts about God, but wanting to know what he's like, everything else just kind of falls away. All those problems, all that anxiety that you had, all those those issues that you had with people at work, all all of this other stuff, this, this human stuff that we deal with, just grows strangely dim. Because you start to behold the glory of God. And as you do that, you will proclaim like the angels did in Isaiah 6 as they flew around him. All that they could say was not, we have other places to be and I'm so busy and I'm so this and I'm so stressed and I'm so that. All they could say was, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There is nothing greater for us to know than to know who he is. It makes problems in life, it doesn't make them easy, but it gives it meaning. I love that you brought that up earlier. Suffering's never just an end in and of itself. God works something through everything. And if nothing else, what he will work through it in you is to get your eyes off of down here and put it on him. That's what he does. 
And guess what? This is the most loving thing that he can do for you. Because in God, we find all the joy there is to know. We find all the peace. We find grace. We find mercy. We find calmness for our busy minds and our anxious hearts. It's all found in him. And so what God does with the person's life is takes them through valleys and, and through storms and through hard times so that they learn not to look on things of the earth but on him. And as we do that, we begin to learn more of his joy and more of his peace and more of his grace and his love and his, his holiness until the day that we die. And then we will be in eternal bliss. Think about that. Worst case scenario for you as a Christian is that you die and you see God. Wow. What a mighty God we serve. The last point here is that no one may delude you. So it's safety. Verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. There's a lot of stuff that sounds really good. But until we know Christ, we cannot know the difference between almost right and truth. This is what Charles Spurgeon says, that discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It is knowing the difference between right and almost right. And when we know Christ, we will know how to spot the difference. But not just in false teaching from heretical preachers, but also in lies that your own flesh will tell you. You'll know to spot the difference between when God is is stirring and speaking in you and when Satan is trying to lead you away. You see, when Satan whispers in your ear, he tells you, run. When God whispers in your ear, though he might convict you, he will say, run to me. And when you know Christ, you know how to spot the difference. No, 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 that's Satan. That's not of God. I'm not going to listen to that. I reject that. Or when people are talking at work and they're offering you a lot of really good-sounding, terrible advice... You can say, no, like I appreciate you trying to share with me some wisdom, but I I know Christ. I have access to all knowledge and wisdom. As we close this morning, I will ask you again, if this was Paul's struggle and desire for the Colossians, how much more should it be for us, for one another, and for ourselves? That we struggle this way for one another. I'm not telling you to go get, put yourself in prison today. But that we would be there for one another. Namely, and first and foremost, in prayer. Praying that we would all come to a knowledge of God. A full assurance of who God is. It is the greatest treasure that you can have in this lifetime. It is the greatest thing that we can wish for anyone, and certainly for ourselves, that we would know Christ. Not that we would just be churchgoers, not that we'd just be nice people, but that we would know him 
and that we would be assured in our knowledge of him. So again, I will ask you this morning, do you know him? Do you have that confidence that I know Jesus and no one can take that from me? You see, he made a way for us to know him on the cross of Calvary. God, in his infinite wisdom and love for us, sent his son to pay the debt that you and I owe him. Christ went willingly to this cross, laid down his life, died on this cross, suffering under the weight of God's wrath that you and I had stored up for ourselves. He stood in our place that we may stand in the place of Christ before God. Whenever we call on the name of the Lord and put our faith in him and repent of our sins, you shall be saved. And you personally can know Christ for yourself. And you personally will have access to this treasure house of knowledge and wisdom that is found in the person of Jesus. Let's stand. Knowing Christ and being assured of your knowledge of him is of infinite value to you. For in him we find the fountain of all knowledge and wisdom. And when we have the confidence of this understanding, it makes us impervious to being led astray by plausible arguments that would normally distract us from God. So may God grant us all the grace to be united in our pursuit of the knowledge of Christ. We'll pray and be dismissed. Gracious God, Lord, we thank you for sending your Son. We thank you that you went willingly. We thank you that you've done for us what we could never do for ourselves. God, we thank you that you've given us a real opportunity, a real avenue, a real way to know you personally. God, that the invitation is not to religion and, and, and moral duty, but the invitation is to know a person. So Lord, I pray that right now, this morning, for those of us in here who, who don't know you, for those in here this morning who don't have that confidence, God, Lord, that you would do a work in them supernaturally by the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of your gospel and that you would save them and bring them into you, Lord. God, and for those of us who do know you, Lord, that you would fill us with confidence that comes from knowing you. That we would be reminded this morning that if we know Christ, we have everything we need. And with these things, we will be content. Lord, forgive us for the many times that we fall short and the many times that we're distracted from that truth. And help us, Lord, to strip away the flesh and to walk in step with the Spirit, ever beholding Christ. 
May you be glorified in all of our lives. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.